No, it's a, it's a blessing to be here. I've been hearing about this church, praying for this church for so many years now. Uh, love Derek, love all that God is doing in and through this place. And so it's just a special treat for me and my family to be able to come. I got uh, three boys, they're 15, 10, and seven. Um, so they're enjoying experiencing here too. Um, we are in a passage today, it's one of my favorite, and it's very dense, and it's got a lot of stuff in it, um, but it's a beautiful passage. We're going to look at the end of Romans 12, uh, 14 to 21. Sometimes when we see these passages, and it, and it sounds like it's telling us to do all kinds of really good or hard stuff, we can think, man, no way in heck I can do that, and we can ditch it. Or we kind of read it, and we don't think about it deeply, and think about how much it's really requiring of us, so it doesn't really have an impact on us. So I want to work through this today and see the full impact it can have on us as followers of Christ and on you here at Renewal and in Chicago. But listen to these challenging verses. Bless those, and if you can please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, or by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for passages like this. We thank you, Lord, that we don't read these things thinking we can do them in our own strength, but we read these things as the full implication of the gospel. We read these things as teaching us who Jesus is, why he came, and what he ultimately wants to do in our lives. And so I pray, Lord, that you would challenge each and every one of us in here. Help me to faithfully proclaim your word and help each of us, no matter where we come from, what our experience has been, help us to not walk out of these doors without being changed, challenged, and encouraged. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, please be seated. It's not very difficult for any of us to argue or see that we live in a divided world, right? We see it nation to nation. We see it within our own nation. We see it within our own cities. We see it with the different ethnic tensions. We see it with different socioeconomic tensions. We see it even in our own families. We see it church to church. We see it within church. We live in a divided world. The hard thing about that for us as we read God's word is we very clearly see that God has created humanity to find unity and peace in our commonality. He's created us as image bearers. He's created us to be united to each other. But the only time we really see unity in this world is when it's been in, in this group being opposed to the other, which is really no unity at all, right? Think about this for a minute. Even in our popular culture and in our movies, when's the only time we see all of humanity united? Alien invasion, right? <laughs> there always has to be an other that can be opposed and hated, and the other always has to be some kind of dehumanized force. And we see that and we think, oh, it's just an alien movie. But that's a reflection of our culture. It's a reflection that rings within us because we are taught to unify with those that are like us in opposition to the other. But that's destructive to our souls. We know from reading the Bible story, there are only two kinds of human beings on this entire planet. There are broken image bearers that have been redeemed and renewed in Christ. And we are called to love them in a unique and special way. And there are broken image bearers that desperately need Christ. And we're called to love them, pray for them, and introduce them to Jesus. 
There is no other for us as image bearers of God. So how do we really walk that out and live it out? It's really challenging, right? If we really think about this, that in our world, what we call unity really often isn't kind of unity at all. What does it look like for us to pursue it? And if we're honest, Christians now and throughout history have been awful at making peace. But God has put us in this world as followers of Jesus to make peace, to teach the world how to make peace, to bring people together. And I know that's complex. We'll get to some of the complexities, but it's, it's hard, but it's beautiful. And so we're going to talk about peacemaking today. We're going to talk about what it looks like to overcome evil with good. And we know it's hard and there's complexities in it, but we also know it's beautiful when it happens. I had the opportunity uh, earlier this year to go to a congressional forum on racial reconciliation in D.C. There's about 60 leaders, very diverse group from across the nation. And they had this introduction period where everyone kind of stood up, a couple minutes about yourself, who you are, what God's done while you're there. Simple intros. And we're going around the room and it was fine. This, This guy gets up. He's in his mid-50s, kind of crew cut, white guy, heavy set. And he says this, he says, uh, I'm the executive pastor of an historically black church in Lakeland, Florida. And my name's Richard Harris. Interesting, right? It's not uncommon altogether, but interesting story. And he says, but of course, if you were to Google me, you would quickly find out I'm most famous for being the youngest ever grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan in the state of Indiana. So go on to hear more of his story. So at 16, this guy has such a gifted kind of orator and leader, he gets pulled into the KKK in Indiana. By 18, they make him the Grand Dragon, the head of the whole state. I don't know where these guys get these names, but they make him the head of the whole state. Then he draws the attention of the, of the wizard or whatever who wants to come in and mentor him because he's gifted in his hateful rhetoric. And this, this guy comes in and says, you know what, you'd be more effective if you learn how to throw some Bible into your, into your hate speech. Didn't call it hate speech, but that's what it is, right? So this guy opens up the passage to the woman at the well. It's the only thing he's ever heard preached on. And he's heard the woman at the well story preached on as Jesus's endorsement of racial segregation. Go figure. So he gets into this passage and he's looking at it and he's seeing and he sees that far from Jesus being about segregation and hate and division, Jesus is only always ever about love and forgiveness and bringing folks together. And he's radically converted at the point in time. Problem is you don't get to leave the KKK alive if you're a grand dragon. But the guy is such a popular leader that they, they figure that if they kill him, there'll be more ramifications against them, so they let him leave. Let him leave, they go on. This guy goes on to do graduate work and to work for the last 40 years of his life for racial reconciliation and training and this kind of thing. Here's what's even more amazing about this. One of the co-organizers of this whole uh, racial reconciliation forum is a woman named Barbara Williams Skinner. She was the first woman to be the executive director of the Congressional Black Caucus in D.C., She herself would say that she would kind of joke about it. She was a Black Panther sympathizer, if not a member, out in California when it was getting going. And so she would say of her own testimony, she was taught division and hate and separation too. Uh, A good friend of mine, David Anderson, was taking Barbara Williams Skinner and Richard Harris that Friday to the African American History Museum in D.C. Former Black Panther, former member of the KKK, because Jesus is real. And reconciliation is beautiful and it's powerful but it's also hard. And so this passage teaches us how it's not just these grand big ideas, it's these little actions day to day. It's learning that when God gets a hold of your life, when God really redeems and renews you through the personal work of Jesus Christ, what he does, he doesn't just make peace between himself and you, he then makes you a peacemaker. He makes you an implement, an instrument of peace to make peace between others. He transforms you with the power of that love and peace and grace and makes you more and more like him. And as you become more like him, you become more of a peacemaker of a reconciler, spreading love. So we're going to look at Romans, but I want to understand the passage here. Eugene Peterson translates the the first uh, two verses of Romans 12 like this. 
Because here's the thing. It's not just about being nice and making nice. It's about recognizing that God pulls your whole life into his sphere to redeem, renew, and transform absolutely everything. So here's how Eugene Peterson renders this verse. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. This is what we're after. Slowly understanding this progression in our lives that God is going to bring the best out of us, the transformed self, the peacemaking self, and that evil can be overcome by good. My goal in this passage today, I'm going to throw a lot at you, but my overriding goal is to persuade each one of us that the transformational power of the love of Jesus is real and that God wants to get a hold of you and make it in your life and we're going to see what that looks like. It's going to be challenging, but I want us to believe the truth of it and the power of it so we can see it lived out more and more in our lives. The power of the Holy Spirit in Christ is real and what this passage talks about isn't just religious language, it's a reality we can live into if we understand who Jesus really is. So we're not after some kind of utopian delusion. We're not after pretending that things aren't hard or difficult. What we're after is believing in a big Jesus and believing that little by little, is over as long of a period of time as we need, little by little, God wants to persuade us that Jesus Christ really is who he said he is and you really are who he said you are. And because of that, renewal and transformation can come to your life. So here's our main idea. You are called as a follower of Jesus. Really, you're called as a human being, but can only do it through Jesus, to overcome evil with good. So we're going to look at this in three sections. First, we're going to look at how love produces empathy, and then how love restrains, and then how love empowers. So first here, love produces empathy. Many different definitions for empathy, but I'm going to, I'm going to define it this way. The ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Again, there is no other for us. We are broken human beings that desperately need Jesus. There are only image bearers. That goes all the way back to the foundation of this. So in light of that, we're called to do this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Empathy, connection, other human beings are not people to be opposed. They're people to be loved and understood and transformed by the power of Jesus. Every human being is an image bearer of God, entitled to dignity and worth and honor and love, every human being. And when God's love comes into our hearts, it, it changes our hearts and it enables us to love others in a different way. The first place God does transformation in our lives is relationally. He transforms us through his relationship with us, and then he works through our relationships with others to transform us. That's how God made us. That's why how we relate to God and how we relate to each other is so important, because it's a direct window into how much you really believe about who God is and how much he's really doing in your life. What does Jesus say, right? You cannot hate your brother and claim to love him. It doesn't work, because we're connected, and that's how God made us. So I'm going to go through these kind of rapid fire, but bless those who persecute you. We're called to bless them, to call down God's favor upon them. It's hard not to empathize with someone that you're praying for. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. You're entering into their experiences. You're identifying with them. When they're mourning and they're grieving, you're coming alongside them to do it. But I think oftentimes it's hard to come alongside someone when they're rejoicing, right? Like if you're mourning, I come alongside and go, hey, brother, I'm so sorry. I'm praying for you. I hope things go better. 
But when you're called to rejoice, a little different sometimes, right? Someone comes in and goes, hey man, I just bought a house, it's amazing. You're like, that's awesome. I'll never be able to afford a house here, but now I'm, I'm thrilled for you. Right? Someone else comes to you like, hey man, I've only lived in Chicago for like two weeks, but I think I already met the woman I'm going to marry. And you're like, man, that, that's great. I've been praying for like three years and God hasn't brought anyone to me, but now I'm just rejoicing with you. It's awesome. Praise God. Like, man, I just got a raise. I got like 25% raise. I don't know what I'm going to do with all this money. You're like, yeah, I, I can't even make my bills, but praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for that for you. Right, and it goes on and on and on, right? Like envy and kids and all these different situations, but we're called to rejoice. Why? Because we're connected. And God is going to use the gifts he gives to someone to bless us all. He's going to use the gifts he gives to us to bless us all. And when we see each other as connected, we can then move and challenge each other to use all of our gifts, to use all that he has done in our lives to bless and to love and to serve others. We're called to live in harmony with one another. Literally, it means to think the one thing towards another person. Uh, one commentator said, it's like singing off the same sheet of music. So if Jesus is our melody, we're all singing harmony, but we're all reading off the same music because we're part of the same body. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Again, what's the idea here? All are image bearers of Christ. So if you think about it this way, there, there's at least two primary ways we know Jesus. One is God transforms us and we read his word and we pray and the Holy Spirit transforms our hearts. We know that. We're well acquainted with that. But the second, perhaps even greater way that we're transformed is through the body of Christ. And if the body of Christ is every tribe, tongue, and nation, if the body of Christ is no Jew, Gentile, no slave, free, let me break it down a bit, right? There's no greater ethnic distinction in the ancient world than Jew and Gentile. There's no greater ethnic separation in the ancient world than Jew and Gentile. There's no greater socioeconomic distinction in the ancient world than, than slave and free. So what he's teaching us is that the body of Christ has no distinctions among it, no socioeconomics or ethnicities or anything to keep us, together, uh, keep us apart, rather. Our oneness in Christ is more important than our oneness in absolutely everything else is another way of putting it. And so if I am cutting myself off from people that, that, are, that are different than me, I'm not just being a jerk. I'm diminishing my ability to know Jesus. I'm diminishing my ability to know how he works and how he moves. That's the strength of a congregation like this. The socioeconomic and ethnic diversity of a congregation like Renewal, it means you can see a bigger Jesus and have more transformative power at work and teach the city more what it looks like to be Christ. It's what it is. We got to see that and understand it and own it because God wants to use it. God is going to use us in powerful ways, but we have to have a big Jesus. And to have a big Jesus, we need to see each other. Bishop Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, uh, led the apartheid movement, or led the anti-apartheid movement rather in South Africa. He says it this way, and I've learned a lot from this quote. Differences are not intended to separate, to alienate. We are different precisely in order to realize our need of one another. So I've talked to my boys about this. When I see someone that's different than me, how amazing would it be to think, man, they've got a deeper experience than I do in some area. I need to learn from them. I actually might understand God more if I sit down and understand their experience. And as we do that person to person and across all these different groups, what happens? It's like a mosaic getting filled in. God's bigger. God's grander. Our understanding of what it means to be human, what it means to be redeemed and renewed in Christ is bigger and deeper and more powerful. That's why all this stuff is so important. We need empathy because God has created us for a unity, a commonality and connection with each other. We are called to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. I'll be honest with you, that sounds ridiculous, right? But God teaches us at so many different levels what love is. He teaches us primarily, I think, in many ways through families. That, that what God does, I've learned more about what it means to unconditionally love another human being through having children than I have through anything else. 
unconditionally loving someone else no matter what, no matter how gross it is, how annoying it is, how whatever it is, fill in the blank, right? If you got kids, you know what I'm talking about. But a few years back, my middle son had the stomach flu and it had blown through the whole family. Thankfully, by God's grace, I had escaped it. If you've ever seen the stomach flu, it's nasty business. So my wife had been caring for the whole family throughout the whole week. And my middle son was the last one hit. So I told her to go ahead and go to bed. And I take, take care of our son, who was just throwing up and dry heaving throughout the entire night. So I won't get into too graphic details, but like threw out towels on all the couch, sat down on the couch, held my son on my arms, because this is my fatherly duty. I'm going to carry it out because it's what a dad does. A dad sticks by his son. And I'm holding my kid as he's just in pain and he's weak and he's, why is this happening to me? And I'm praying for him and I'm talking to him. And somewhere in the middle of the night, what went from like fatherly duty and obligation, God transformed my heart to see the incredible privilege it was to love this other human being that I'm connected with. To see this person and all their suffering and all their mess and know there's nothing else on earth I'm called to do right now more than I'm called to sit here and love and care for this boy and assure him that he's going to be okay. But how would it be to take the empathy that God does in our closest relationships? And I know families are broken, things are complicated, but think about the closest relationships you've had. Someone in your life that you've come as close to loving unconditionally as anyone else. What would it look like to take that same lens and look at your neighbor? What would it look like to take that same lens and look at your enemy? To look at someone that's altogether other than you and say, what kind of transformative power might God want to work in my heart so I can love them in the way I'm called to love them? It doesn't come overnight, but God wants to transform our hearts through the power of the love of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to enable us to look at every human being on the planet differently. We cannot look, and we cannot, we cannot look at anyone and not see their humanity. We cannot look at anyone and not see their image-bearer nature. We cannot look at anyone and see someone that lacks dignity and worth and honor and love. That's how we're supposed to look at all humanity. So secondly here, we'll see this progression here. The first step towards overcoming evil with good is is empathy, is seeing our connection to others. The second step is, is to allow love to restrain our hearts, what I call the negative commands that are in these scriptures. There's four commands about relinquishing the right that we are supposed to have to get even and to retaliate. I'd like us to think about these negative commands as a part of how God is training us to love. There's a great book by a college professor and, and, uh, and theologian named Jaden K. Smith, and it's called uh, You Are What You Love. And he says this, the key is to know that love is a habit, not merely a choice. Learning to love God is like learning to play Bach. It requires daily immersion in habits and practices that train the muscles of my heart to desire and thus do what it ought. So this whole section isn't just giving us these little platitudes, it's training us how to overcome evil with good. At any moment in time as we're interacting with other people, we are either being trained to overcome evil with good, or we're being trained to allow good to be overcome with evil. There's no neutrality here. So we're called here, it says, do not curse. This command cuts against everything that's natural in our human instincts. When I get wronged, when someone legitimately does something bad to me, I want to speak back, I want to strike back, I want to give back. But what does God do? He calls me to bless him and not to curse. Cursing is literally calling down God's judgment on somebody else. If I'm desiring something negative to happen to somebody else, I'm essentially saying to hell with you, words that should never come out of my mouth as a follower of Jesus Christ. We are called, even in the midst of the worst offense, to bless and not to curse. How do we do that? Where have we seen that? Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. How have we seen it? On the cross. The worst offense, the most unearned offense in the entire history of the planet, right? And what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
The whole prophecy of Isaiah 53 lays that out. That as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He went willingly to the grave. He went willing to, to a place where he absorbed all the wrath and punishment and brokenness of this world for those like you and those like me that did not deserve it. He was the one that blessed and did not curse. And as we're united to him and see others, not as others, but as image bearers, we're enabled to love and restrain in the way that he's called us to love and restrain. This isn't just a grand vision, it's a practical everyday vision. One of the things that my boys know about me, and it's unfortunate, is that I hate traffic. I don't do well in traffic. God uses it to sanctify me. And sometimes, sometimes like, I'm okay with traffic if there's no reason. I mean, anyway, that's bad. I'm going to excuse my sin. I won't do it in front of you guys. So if I'm sitting in a traffic jam, and there's no earthly reason why there should be a traffic jam, I start to get frustrated. And then if other people are making it worse... And, and, and hypothetically speaking, coming and then cutting me off, it just makes it all the worse for me. So if, again, hypothetically speaking, if I've been waiting in a traffic jam for 45 minutes and someone shoots up on the side and puts everyone's life in danger because they think they're more important than everyone else and they cut me off and put my family's life in danger and everyone else's, it's hard for me to respond well. But I've been trying to respond better because I got boys and I'm raising, and I'm realizing I'm equipping them to not think the right things when they're in traffic. And so here's the thing. I've been doing pretty well lately, I think. I think. So I'm driving, and this is earlier this year, and I'm driving in the car, and someone does that same thing, but I'm ready for it, right? I'm not going to speak because I'm going to just put on Jesus, and I'm going to put out love, and I'm good, and someone cuts me off. And I'm like, that wasn't smart. It's just a big step of me. This is growth for me. <laughs> but then my seven-year-old in the back seat says, that guy's an idiot, huh, Dad? <laughs> and it seems minor. But how have I trained my kids? I'm training them, it's a minor thing, but I'm training them even in these little things to allow evil to overcome good. I'm willing to dehumanize another human being because I, you know, I'm annoyed that they would think that they can cut me off, right? How on earth am I willing to do that? So I say back to my son, or I'm thinking in my head, no, 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 son, he, he's an image bearer. Cl clearly a broken image bearer that desperately needs Jesus, but an image bearer nonetheless. You see, in big and small ways on everyday life, God is in the ordinary going out and coming in and the sleeping and the working, all those kind of things. He's training us to overcome evil with good. So next he says, do not repay evil with evil. So you see the progression here, right? The next step after I'm willing to curse someone, after I'm willing to decide that they're worthy of my disdain, after I'm willing to do that, then I might be willing to take the next step and repay evil for evil. And again, it's not always in these big dramatic events. It's oftentimes in the ordinary things. What do I do when I'm angry at my spouse? Am I willing to, e even if I think I have good cause of it, if I repay anger with anger or repay like, you know, division with division, I'm allowing evil to overcome good. If my kids are frustrating the heck out of me, again, hypothetical, and, and, and I'm sitting there, what do I do? If I yell back at them and I teach them that anger is an okay response to their being whatever they're being, then I'm teaching them to allow evil to overcome good. I'm allowing them, I'm basically teaching them that you go tit for tat in this world. When someone does something to you, you go back at them. And, 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 and what is that, right? That's the source of every division and every nastiness we've had in the entire history of the world. I like how Martin Luther King Jr. puts this. He says, if we do an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we will be a blind and toothless nation. We don't do revenge. We don't do getting back because we have empathy. We have connection with other human beings. They're broken image bearers like us that desperately need Jesus. And so we love them as Christ has loved us. Unconditionally and with great challenge in our hearts, we lay our lives down so we can love and serve. Next verse. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. 
For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. See, here's the thing about this passage. We recognize that God is on the throne and that there may be bigger things in play here than I'm able to, to understand. Maybe I'm not the center of the universe. Maybe the entire history of the world is not supposed to revolve around me. I don't know what God knows about this other person. I don't know what this other person's going through. I don't know what this other person has gone through. I don't know what their childhood was like. I don't know what hurt and brokenness they might be dealing with on a daily basis. I don't know. So am I willing to love them and give them the benefit of the doubt? See, the other option is to allow hate to breed hate. But what does that do? It's just as a descending spiral of destruction because that's not how we were made as human beings. I'm able to trust in God through the power of Jesus and not take revenge. And by doing that, I can break that cycle. I can put healing in the place of hurt. I can put good in the place of evil. God knows all and he is on his throne. He alone can judge and he will judge the heart of every human being. Now here's the deal though. Evil is real, we know that, right? And this passage is not making light of evil. Uh, Bishop Tom Wright, who's a pastor and a theologian in, in England, says it this way. We should note that this does not mean going soft on evil. Saying you shouldn't take revenge isn't a way of saying evil isn't real, or that it didn't hurt after all, or that it doesn't matter. Evil is real, it often does hurt, sometimes very badly indeed and with lasting effects, and it does matter. This is perhaps one of the fundamental differences between Christianity and, say, Buddhism. Because we believe in a creator God who made a good and lovely world, we believe that everything which defaces and distorts, damages, or spoils part of that creation is not just another variety of goodness, but is actually its opposite, evil. The question is, what are we going to do about it? We can recognize evil for evil. We can call out evil for evil, but then we're called to allow love and goodness to overcome evil to demonstrate that the power of love and grace and forgiveness is always greater, always more thorough, and always more beautiful than revenge and evil and just getting back because you think you're entitled to give back and get back. Next, do not be overcome by evil. So as we learn to bless and not to curse, as we learn to repay, not to repay evil with evil, as we learn not to take revenge, what we're doing is learning to overcome evil with good. We're learning that we have the power through Christ, the power through his Holy Spirit to love and let that work. But if I refuse to forgive, if I refuse to allow love to restrain my heart, then what I'm doing is allowing my mind to be transformed in the direction of evil. I'm actually being taken away from being conformed into Christ's image. I cannot lack forgiveness unless I've judged myself to be morally superior to somebody else. I cannot lack forgiveness unless I say, God, in my eyes, I'm worthy and they're not. Go ahead and judge them. But if I see a big Jesus, and I see how much I've been forgiven, then I'm enabled to forgive others. What's the fruit of the other way? If I decide to get revenge, to return evil for evil, to do all these things this passage tells me I shouldn't do, what results? Does healing result? No. Does relational wholeness result in me, my family, or my church? No. Does does health, spiritual, emotional health result? No. What results? More likely, it's just increasing brokenness and destruction in them and in us, and it's a downward spiral. Again, this is a challenging idea, but this, this passage lays it very clear. It doesn't say, it doesn't say this. It doesn't say, um, overcome evil with good sometimes, or do your best, but it's, it's okay. You can curse that person if they're really bad. You don't have to love everyone. It doesn't give us those outs. It's laying a stark contrast. The way of Jesus is the way of overcoming evil with good. The way of Jesus is the way of forgiveness. The way of Jesus is the way of love. And if we're in Jesus, if we're pursuing him, if we're following him, that is who we are. If love's not restraining and transforming you, you are being overcome by evil. 
It's hard to believe, but it's so clear in this passage. John Stott, another English preacher, this guy was living in London and ministering there for 60 years. Saw incredible divisions, saw all kinds of real life. So he's not just giving us platitudes, but he says it this way. A stark, a stark alternative is set before us. No neutrality, no middle way is envisioned. If we curse, repay evil for evil, or take revenge, then, because all these are evil responses to evil, we have given in to evil, been sucked into its sphere of influence, been defeated, overcome, and even overpowered by it. But there's always hope for us. God does not just give us these four negative commands. He gives us love, empowering, positive commands to go with it. So, so he's restraining evil, he's giving us empathy, he's doing all these incredible things, but then we're going to see in this next section how love empowers us to do great and beautiful and healing things because of who Jesus is and what he's done. So thirdly, we're going to look at this idea that love empowers, but before I go on, here's the thing I need to really remind us of. I need this for my own heart. What I'm not saying and what this passage is not saying is do your best to be a better person. Turn over a new leaf in your life, dig deep within your soul and just be good. It's never doing that. What's it saying? It's saying, recognize the reality, the real transformation that's taking place in your heart because of Jesus. Recognize that the supernatural power of his Holy Spirit is living in you, and then live out of that power. Earlier in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 5. This reminds us of the foundation we stand on. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We stand in grace because of Jesus. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been been given to us. That's where we stand. These themes of hope and glory and grace and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that's who we are. It's not putting on moral behavior. It's from the inside out, living out the reality of who God is and who he's empowered us to be. We are being trained to overcome evil by good because we're united to Christ. His Holy Spirit's in us, and that's the nature of our faith. Now, again, the church has sucked at this historically, right? The church has used these scriptures for division and racism and persecution and all kinds of nastiness, but that doesn't change the truth of God's word or who Jesus Christ is or what the Holy Spirit is. What would it be like if we saw that, amen? If we see this in our own lives, do it in our own families, do it in our own churches, what happens is there's this love and grace and power that overflows and begins to transform. Because the church has been weak in the past does not mean it needs to be weak in the future. What we can do is focus on loving and serving and letting evil overcome, be overcome by love and and goodness in our own lives. So here's the positive challenges, and they're challenging. Bless those who persecute you. Spoke about this a little bit earlier with love producing empathy, but we're to bless somebody, to pray for those who are doing evil to us. We are to seek to understand them, to love them, to see them transformed by the love of Christ. Good night, that's hard. But it's so beautiful when it happens. And it's exactly what Christ has already done for us. It is hard to hate someone that you're praying for. It's not impossible, but it is hard. Because God is showing you you have a responsibility in their lives to love them and to pray for them. Now, it doesn't mean every relationship can be reconciled and you can live at peace with all people. But it does mean you are to work in that direction, to allow love to transform you and to give you an imagined reality that that can be so much more beautiful and real and united than you can ever possibly hope or dream. 1217, do not repay anyone evil for evil, the negative one there. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. 
We're called to do what's helpful and beneficial to serve people in the way that will bring about the most good. We're actually called to serve people in the way that will be understood by them to be for their benefit. Right? So I'm called to come and speak to you if we're in a conflict in a way that's going to be to your benefit where you'll understand it. Now there's a place for like, you know, hey, I'm speaking the truth in love, but let's be honest, that's misused so many times, right? We can use that as cover to be an absolute jerk to somebody. I spoke the truth. I'm good. No, but did you speak the truth in a way that was loving? Did you speak the truth in a way that made it clear that you are actually for that person and want their best, understand that they're united with you and Jesus? Or did you just throw it out there like a little bomb and walk away? Did you use God's word for division instead of unity? Told you these things are hard. 1218, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There's a preacher in the fourth century, one of the early church fathers named John Chrysostom, lived in a divided city, lived in an incredibly tumultuous, war-torn time, and he preached reconciliation and forgiveness more than almost any other theme. Here's the theme of his ministry as he would define it. He says, for in fact, this was the crucial work of the only begotten to bring together things divided and to reconcile the alienated. Think on that for a minute with me. If that truly is the primary mission of Jesus Christ and you're a follower of Jesus, you're leaning in, you're stepping into the way of Jesus and you're united to Jesus, can anything else be the mission of your life? Is there a place for alienation and division in your life? No. There isn't. Again, challenging, but this is the clear teaching of what God's doing with us. Of course, these teachings can be easily misused. We're not talking about using these teachings. I'll talk about that in a minute. We're not talking about misusing these and abusing these. We're talking about for our own hearts and in our own lives, understanding what's really going on here. So uh, how do we live at peace as far as it depends on us with other people? Well, for some of us, we have a conflict in our lives and we're making it really complex and we're making it seem like it's too complicated to resolve because we just don't want to forgive and we don't want to love. And and if you're in that situation, let it go. Love and forgive. For some of us, you actually do have a conflict that's so complicated it is difficult to sort through and walk through. But you ain't going to solve the problem by taking up aggression and by taking up weapons and by striking back. You're going to solve it by inviting godly brothers and sisters into your life to talk through it with you, to pray with you, and to find a way forward in love and transformation. If Jesus Christ could find his way forward to love and forgive those that were his enemies, as scripture tells us, how much more can we find our way forward to love and forgive? Doesn't mean we can completely reconcile. Doesn't mean we can store every relationship. Doesn't mean you have to invite a, an abusive person back into your life. But it means you got to stop letting them destroy your heart and your love for other people. Don't give them power over you. Bitterness and refusing to forgive is giving someone else destructive power in your life. Forgiving them is letting go of that, saying, God's big enough, I can love and forgive, even if they're never going to ask my forgiveness. Challenging, but we can do these things because of who God is and because of what he's done in our lives. We are to pursue listening and understanding, and there's always hope in Christ. Tom, right again, I love this on this passage. I've, I've been thinking through this a lot this year. For Paul, the question of what we are to do begins with the question, what has God done about it? Quite a bit of the letter earlier on has been devoted to answering this question, and it boils down to what it says in 5, 6 to 11. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. There are many other things to be said about God's moral governance in the world, of the world, but at the center of the Christian story stands this claim, that when human evil reached its height, God came and took his full weight upon himself, thereby exhausting it and opening the way for creation of a new world altogether. Revenge keeps evil in circulation whether in a family or a town or an entire community like the Middle East or Northern Ireland. 
The culture of revenge and less broken is never ending. Both sides will always be able to justify further atrocities by reference to those they themselves have suffered. You can always find an excuse or a rationalization to get back and to strike back, but it's never the way of Jesus. It's always loving and forgiving and allowing him to transform. And we have to work to break this cycle. It's so amazing to me. My own, the, the root of my own evil and refusing to forgive somebody that I have conflict with is at the core, that impulse is what's caused every murder, division, war, and atrocity in the entire history of humanity. Isn't that amazing? Because at the core, we're given the option by God through the power of his Holy Spirit to love or to hate. And if we choose hate, we bring destruction. And if we choose love, we rebuild, we renew, we restore. That's the work of Jesus and that's the work he's drawn us into. 1219, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Again, what's the idea here? The Lord is in charge. He is on his throne. You don't know all you think you know about all these situations. I don't know all I think I know. Conflict has a tendency to flatten things out. We have a tendency to judge others by our perception of their motives and ourselves by our best intentions. Let me give you a quick example here, right? If I lie, you got to understand. If you lie, how dare you oppose me in this way, right? I'm always going to judge myself by my perception or my best intentions, and I'm going to judge you. My tendency is going to be to judge you by my worst assessment of what you possibly could be motivated by. How can I possibly know that? So I'm called to bless and to love and to, and to pursue that. And we're finishing up here in a couple minutes, but listen to this. 1220. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So we're, we're to give our enemy what he needs, not what we think he deserves. The, the commentators are undecided on what it means to heap burning coals on their head, but essentially the idea is, the general consensus, that we are to treat them in a way that brings about repentance because they're overcome with love and goodness. F.F. Bruce, a theologian in the 20th century who was at Princeton, said it this way, treat your enemy kindly, for that may make him ashamed and lead to his repentance. In other words... The best way to get rid of an enemy is to turn him into a friend and so overcome evil with good. How beautiful is that? that? That's Richard Harris and Barbara William Skinner coming together with a loving friendship that has been used to redeem and renew and restore so many. Now again, this has to be used with, with wisdom here, right? Like doing this, treating someone else in this other way, we have to use wisdom, we have to ask God's guidance. If you've got a friend that's an addict, they probably don't need your trust, Right? If you've got someone that's abusive, they don't need you just kind of looking past it and understanding they need to be confronted. So we are to live at peace in a way consistent with the overall message of God. But we are to have love at our core, renewal at our core. And so finally, here's what it's all been building to. Verse 12, 21. Every verse prior to this verse has been building to this point and enabling us to do this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The teaching here is that if we do all these things, practice them little by little, we're being trained. We are being trained to overcome evil with good. I love reading people that have been in war-torn nations. I love reading people that have been through real life and the thick of it and then come out and tell you their experiences. One of them is a guy named Miroslav Volf, and he was in war-torn Eastern Europe. He's been in prison for his faith. He's been beaten near death. He's seen ethnic division tear apart an entire country. And yet even he would say this, what God is calling us to is a hands-to-heart to head transformation. We begin by loving and serving and we're enabled to, to, as we're loving and serving others, God is transforming us and enabling us to transform our whole perspective on others and to recognize that the power of his Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. 
I want to close with two illustrations of what God's taught me so much with in the last number of years. One's kind of a big one, and then one's kind of a more practical one. Archbishop Desmond Tutu was awarded the 1984 Nobel Peace Prize for his fighting against apartheid in South Africa. Archbishop Desmond Tutu has been in prison. He's been beaten. He's been through real stuff, right? He, in, in 1999, by Nelson Mandela in South Africa, is given the head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission, their, their mission was to investigate all the crimes of apartheid and to report those crimes and to deal with those crimes, but to do it for the purpose of reconciliation and bringing the nation back together. I feel like oftentimes our nation does truth for the purpose of division. So it's a beautiful example. It wasn't perfect, he'll be honest with you and, and all the, the problems it had, but what a beautiful impulse. But he's the one that led it and this is what he did. On the first day of that commission, he stands up and there's 18 people from a cross-section of society in South Africa and he says this, I've given a lot of thought to this commission and what we're supposed to do here. And I think the worst thing we could do is come together and pretend to be neutral human beings that don't have experiences. Because we're not neutral and we have experiences. But the best thing we can do is come here, be honest about who we are, and then have the humility to learn from each other. And so he says, what you must know about me is I'm a Christian and I'm a theologian. And my faith and my theology has taught me this, that every human being is an image bearer of God, entitled to dignity and worth and honor and love. And the evil system of apartheid has denied a majority of our population dignity and worth and honor because of the arbitrary category of the color of their skin. And so we must fully explain and find the truth of every atrocity under apartheid. To not do so would be to further dehumanize those that have already gone through oppression and suffering. But he says, mind you, I said every human being, I believe, is an image bearer of God. And so even the perpetrator of the worst evils of apartheid is not themselves the face of evil. They're a broken image bearer, capable of repentance and change, and we must call them to it. Isn't that incredible? I had the opportunity last October to go to Desmond Tutu's 85th birthday celebration in South Africa. It was with a group from the United States, and we met with a guy that was the white mayor of Cape Town when Mandela was released in the early 90s in South Africa. And this white mayor says, they were together as government officials, not talking about whether there would be violence, but what to do about the violence how to manage the violence, how to minimize the casualties. And someone in our group asked this guy, how was there no violence? And he said, two reasons. Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu. They led the nation to, begin, to believe that we could forgive and bring ourselves back together. It's incredible, right? So it's this big kind of lofty idea and it's, and it's neat to see how that played out in South Africa. I do work with our church and some local churches in rural Malawi. It's among the poorest of the poor in the world. They're like the sixth poorest nation in the world. And where we're out in the countryside is the absolute poorest of the poor. And the ministry we work with mobilizes local churches to serve widows and orphans. So the most vulnerable in the community, and it's incredible work, right? Because you have these volunteers who are themselves barely above the starvation line, loving and serving and laying their lives down for those that are below the starvation line. So much to be learned and gained. We go there to learn as much as we do to serve. So I'm there one year, we've been tracking with this woman who is um, her, herself a widow, has six kids of her own, and her sister's five kids. And her sister's passed away. So she has 11 kids. And the first time we encounter her, she has almost no food, a pile of maize about this big. And she has these two little mud huts. And she is in utter despair, deep darkness in her eyes. And the group we're with ministers to her for the better part of an hour. And we walked away that day afraid that she was done with life and done with these kids. A year later, we come back. And the first thing I want to do is go and hear this woman's story. And we go back and we see this woman. And she's got a brightness in her eyes. Everything about her situation is materially worse. She has about half the food. And one of her mud huts has been knocked down. And life is worse altogether. 
but some sisters in the local community have come alongside of her. She's found the love of Christ, the transformation of Christ, and she wants to sing with us and share with us about how good and amazing Jesus is. Come back another year, and she's still doing okay, but there's this, there's this older drunk man hanging out on her property. And it seems kind of strange, and we're with the local leaders, and again, I'm in the background here just learning and listening, and they're trying to find out who this man is. And they find out that this man is trying to force this woman to marry him. Because he wants, let's be honest, he wants sex and he wants her fields. This hardworking woman that doesn't have enough money to feed her own kids is about to be oppressed and taken advantage of by some other member of the community. And so we spend a long time kind of talking and they walk through it and they make it clear to the woman, God stands with you. His heart is for the widow and the orphan and we will always be with you and alongside you. We will not let someone come in. Do not feel compelled to marry this man. And they go to this man and they say, look, stay away from this woman. We're gonna speak with the chief. You need to keep your distance. It's not okay what you're doing. So this took about an hour and a half. Everything takes longer there. Sitting down later with Levy, who's a Zambian guy that's a good friend of mine and a mentor in that ministry over there. And Levy says, did you understand everything that was going on? I said, yeah, I think I got the basics, right? You know, good woman, bad man, protect the good woman from the bad man. And Levy says, part of that's right. He says, the heart of the father is always to protect the widow and the orphan. And we will always do that. And we're sitting in this middle of this group of, of all these orphan kids that are being cared for by the church there. And it's a beautiful thing to see these kids laughing and playing who had no hope and no, no future before. And Levy says, we must protect that woman. But we must also recognize that that man was once one of these eight-year-old boys and no one stood for him, no one protected him, no one cared for him, and no one told him about Jesus. I couldn't stand up for a minute. That man made bad decisions. He's accountable for those bad decisions. But that man did not make bad decisions in a vacuum. And I thought about the implications of this more broadly, right? So think about something as awful and as evil as sex trafficking. It's terrible. It's evil. What eight-year-old boy dreams, you know what, when I'm 25, what I really want to do in my life is sexually traffic 10-year-old girls. What happens to that boy? What dehumanizes him to the point that he is willing to so dehumanize somebody else? You see, there are only image bearers in this world. Broken image bearers desperately need a Christ. There is no evil other that we can just oppose outright. We can oppose evil, but we do not oppose individual image bearers. We love them and we serve them and we reach them with Jesus and we demonstrate by our overcoming evil with good the power and what's, a, a, what's possible with Jesus Christ. Can we do that in our own strength? No. Has the church done that well? No. Can this congregation do it well? Praise the Lord, absolutely. We can. My prayer for renewal, my prayer for my church in San Francisco is that we would put on display the renewing and empowering and transforming power of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Amen? Let's pray.